Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians, and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. We introduced the book of Judges last week, and we explained that this book is one big downward spiral for the nation of Israel. It's going to be one story after another of Israel falling into sin, being judged by the Lord, raising up an oppressor, people crying out to God, the Lord raising up a deliverer who wins the battle and establishes a period of peace, and then... Rinse and repeat. Start all over again. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse by the end. By the end of this book, even our heroes are not going to look so good. That's where it's going to go. So this passage picks up where it's left off. And if you really want to be uh, specific about it, the introduction of the book probably should end around verse 6 where I read it here. But uh, this is a good break for us tonight in chapter 3. And he says he leaves some of these nations, which is such a tragedy off the book of Joshua, which is all about going into the land, driving out the Canaanites, taking the land for themselves. Now the Lord makes this announcement, I'm going to leave nations around you. And it explains why, because after reading that big long book and the whole story of the Exodus, you might say, wait a minute, the Lord said that he would do this. Is God going back on his word? Well, no, he's keeping his covenant. But it gives two reasons. Number one, he leaves the nations in there to test the people, to test their faithfulness, to see if they're going to actually obey the word of the Lord. He's going to leave it as a test for them. But then there's this interesting one that came at the beginning of this chapter, to teach war, it said. To teach war to a new generation that had not fought for Canaan, the Lord allowed some of these nations to stay there. Now, there's a whole lesson we could dive into about military preparedness that the Bible has here, but that's not what we're going to focus on tonight. Because really, these two lessons are one and the same. The purposes of God in leaving these nations in Israel was to teach one thing. Because Israel would often be invaded. They're going to be subjugated. But it's important to remember, as we know from Exodus, all going all the way back to Genesis, this was not God's will for them. It was not God's will for them to be hanging on to the promised land by the skin of their teeth. That's not why God brought them out of the land of Egypt. That's not what he promised them. But because they were walking in sin, as we read in verse 6, they were intermarrying with these nations. They were worshiping the other gods from these nations. The Lord leaves them there. And he says that they would be tested in their faithfulness and to teach war. Let's put them together and make this a single purpose. God is trying to provoke and drive his chosen people to the place where they will finally say, I've had enough, pick up the swords and finish the job that Joshua gave them to complete. 
He's trying to bring them to a place of faith where they will take possession of their inheritance by force. Because God has already promised this to them. He's already told them what to do. And so he says, I'm not just going to allow you to have the promise without doing the things I've called you to do. Your fathers were a mighty generation, but I'm not going to finish this job. We're going to see if you yourself can complete the work that has been given to you. The Lord is, in a sense, saying, you can have this promised land at any time. The only thing it will cost you is to take up the sword, as Joshua did, cast aside your idols, as Joshua did, keep the law, as Joshua did, and then take possession of the land. It feels very spiritual sometimes to ascribe the problems in our life to the providence of God, when in reality, they are the result of our own sin. Can I say that again? It feels spiritual to ascribe our problems to providence when really they are the result of our sin. To say, well, this is the way God wants it. The Lord brought this into my life and this is the cross that I have to bear. Important clarification, the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, our Lord himself and the Gospel of John make it clear that not all suffering and not every problem is a result of sin. It's not always a result of God bringing something into your life. Let's remember that. But it's also important to remember that many times that is exactly the case. And it's not so much that God has rained judgment from heaven down upon you. It's more that you are reaping what you have sown. You planted the seeds of sin and now you're reaping a harvest of trouble. You're sowing to the wind and you're reaping the whirlwind, as the prophet would say. For example, are our nation's present troubles with sexual identity, with gender, with all matter of sexuality, are those things a brand new invasive ideology that is taking the world by storm? Well, partly, but it's also true, is it not, that we laid the foundation for this a long time ago? Going back to free love and free sex, liberation, going back to easy divorce and just leave if you're not happy. We've been saying those things for decades. We've been plowing the field. We've been fertilizing it. We've been preparing it so that when the seeds of these wild ideas came, they took root easily. And I've actually noticed in recent years or recent days, I should say recent years, recent days that Many people are trying to get rid of the, let's, let's say at least the transgender nonsense, but they want to go right back to the same thing we were doing before this. And it's like, you can't do that. You can't just walk it back and say, now let's go no further. That's not how ideas work. Let's look at our own personal lives. Are your relationships failing for no reason? Now, if you've got good friends, they might tell you exactly that when you're heartbroken. You're perfect. You're a prize. She's crazy. It's, you know, I don't know what's going on. Your last 10 girlfriends have just been crazy. I don't know what it's all about. The last 12 guys you've dated have just been losers. I don't know what the problem is. Well, is it that or is it because you're a liar? Is it because you're manipulative? Is it because you're a gossip and you can't keep your mouth shut? Because you can't keep your hands to yourself or your texts and direct messages to yourself? Well, that's no reason. Everybody does that. Well, no, that's not everybody does that. Is that why your relationships are failing? How about this one? I'm poor because life just hit me across the back of the head. That happens. It does happen. I'm not going to minimize that. 
But don't you dare say that's why you're poor if you spend every dollar you make and then go out and borrow some more in direct contradiction of what the word has told you to do. You know, Dave Ramsey did not make up the borrower is slave to the lender. That, he got that from scripture. Is it because you are failing to choose wisdom? You're failing to think ahead? You're trying to build a house, as Jesus said, without counting the cost? And you're being an unwise steward of, what's God, of what God has given you? And so now you say, I can't get ahead. It must be the economy. Well, maybe. But you also should look in the mirror, too. One more. Are we all so depressed and anxious because of just the times we live in? Or is it because we are failing to do the things that Jesus specifically told us do to avoid depression and anxiety? Jesus many times told us, do not be anxious. Well, how do I do that? He says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. Paul said, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Do you see what I'm trying to get at here? Sometimes we have these burdens and these colossal troubles in our lives, and there may be external circumstances, but maybe you plowed the field to prepare your life for those seeds to take root. And it's not good to say, well, this is just the way God wants it, if you are, in fact, failing to take possession of the land that God's given you. Isaiah 65, I'm only going to read selected verses from this passage, but the whole thing's worth your time. The whole Bible is worth your time. But Isaiah 65, I'm going to read verse 2 and then 6 and 7 here. This comes off of a chapter where the prophet is saying, God, why don't you step in and help us? And God answers in chapter 65. He says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. In short, I've been trying, but you're not listening. Verse 6 and 7, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds." God, why don't you help us? He goes, well, I've been trying, but you keep on throwing it in my face, and eventually it's going to catch up with you. We want God to drive the Canaanites out of our promised land, but we also want to intermarry with them and worship their gods. Why do we keep getting subjugated? Because that was the deal you made with the Lord. God offers his people abundant life, but we have to remember, abundant life is a stronghold that has to be fought for. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in the Spirit to tear down strongholds. The way out of this depressing downward spiral we're talking about is not to be passive and wait, as spiritual as that might feel, but to stand up, and the title of our message tonight, to fight for something. To get up and get after it. And it might seem like we've been having a lot of these kinds of messages lately. Well, that's the message that the Bible's been teaching us. It's all in there. We're going to see tonight three men, the first three judges, that did exactly that. So we better get into the story, starting verse 7, and then we will get down to verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil. Literally there, it says, they did the evil thing. It's kind of like, you know which one. <laughs> they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherot. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. 
could translate that Messiah for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. To clarify, Kenaz was Caleb's younger brother, not Othniel. Othniel would be his nephew. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 10, was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So here we have our first judges cycle. Israel is invaded by a man named Cushan Rishathaim. And Rishathaim means doubly wicked. So this is not his given name. It is probably a title that the people had for him. Kushan the double wicked. Kind of like Ivan the terrible. Kushan Rishathaim. It says he was from Mesopotamia. There's a lot of people that debate, is this actual Mesopotamia, which means between two rivers? Or is it just any two rivers, but it seems pretty obvious to me which one it is. And so this would be modern day Lebanon, Syria, somewhere up in that region. This section is actually pretty short on details, especially considering Gideon and Samson and some of these other stories we're going to read. But actually, Othniel is the ideal judge in the book of Judges. He's what's called the paradigmatic judge. He is exactly what God wants these people to be. And everybody else is going to pale in comparison to Othniel. We've actually already met Othniel in Joshua chapter 15 and Judges chapter 1. It tells the same story uh, that when Caleb was taking possession of those mountains that he wanted so much, there was a city called Debir. And he said, whoever can take the city of Debir and kill the giant that lives there will get to marry my daughter Aksa. And so Othniel said, out of my way, me first. And he took possession of that city and he married Aksa, so he married into uh, Caleb's direct line. We will actually return to this because Aksa is also uh, an example for the rest of the book of Judges of what an Israelite woman, a godly woman, is supposed to be like. But for right now, we're going to look at him as the greatest of the judges. There are seven major judges in the book that has that name. There are 13 total judges. Some of them are what's called minor judges. We're going to see one of them tonight. It only gives us a line or two about them. And uh, it's, it's, both of them are structured chiastically. We'll talk about that when we get there. But if Othniel is our ideal judge, upon whom was the Spirit of the Lord, walking in the ways of his father Caleb, who of course was the companion of Joshua, he's a warrior. He's a warrior because remember, we're talking about fighting for what God has already declared is ours. He's put a sword in our hand and he said, go get it. And that's what Othniel does. And what we learn from this if your life is occupied by the enemy, meaning if you see parts of your life where Kushan Rishathaim is setting up camp, areas of your life that should belong to Jesus, or areas of society that should be belonging to Jesus, but instead are serving the king of double wickedness, you should not resign yourself to that. What do we resign ourselves to? Circumstances. Things beyond our control. Things that are, are just part of the mystery of life. But when it comes to matters of sin and wickedness, the Bible intends us to get out and destroy those things. Not sit back and say, well, I, I guess I'm just going to have this temper the rest of my life. That's just how God made me. No, that's not how God made you. That's how sin has corrupted you. You should not resign yourself to that, but you should fight. Jesus even tells us what it takes to lay hold of the kingdom of heaven. 
And I wish I could spend a lot of time talking about this verse, but let me just read it. Matthew 11, verse 12, Jesus said, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Let me explain what he means there. The messengers from John the Baptist, when he's in prison, had come to Jesus and said, are you truly the one? And he said, well, tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Happier they who have no doubts about me. And then the messengers leave, and that's when Jesus says, you know what, of men born among women, there's no one like John the Baptist. And he tells everybody, look around you, and then he makes this statement. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, which is likely a reference to uh, John the Baptist being imprisoned. But it's also got this double meaning where it could be translated that the kingdom of heaven is coming violently, like the kingdom is coming. And also, then he says, the violent take it by force. And if you look at the context, what Jesus means as he's speaking to these people and the parables surrounding it, what he means is those who want to be in this kingdom are fighting to get into it. These prostitutes, these lepers, these fishermen, these tax collectors, these sinners that nobody else wants to be around. I have come with John the Baptist. We've opened up the gate to the kingdom of heaven and they're storming the gates. They're storming the gates. Jesus uses that word violently. He's not talking about the kingdom of heaven being conquered by Satan. That's impossible, right? The kingdom of heaven is that stone that's going to strike the feet of the statue and grow until it covers the world. He's talking about the attitude that a person has to have if they want to take their place in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus uses the word violent. Are you okay with that? You better be because Jesus said it. We need to gain a possessive attitude toward the spiritual inheritance that God has given to us. Now, you can be possessive in the wrong way, right? If you say, hey, don't talk to her. That's my girlfriend. We've just been dating two weeks, man. Okay, that's the wrong kind of possessive. Or you can see somebody talking to your child and say, hey, that's my kid. Leave him alone. It's the right kind of possessive. How about, hey, that's my house. Get out of there. That's the good kind of possessive. You know, as long as it's, you know, an intruder, not your mother-in-law or something like that. But it's the same thing. If the Lord has said, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly and all those things. When Satan shows up and starts setting up camp, he says, hey, 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 get out of there. That's not yours. That's mine. And Satan says, what are you going to do about it? I'll fight you for it. I don't know if we should fight the devil. Why not? Because he's already been defeated. Jesus said, I'm going to put your foot on his throat, man. I'm going to lead you. Into victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Christ leads us always in triumphal procession. Romans 8.37 says, we are more than what? Conquerors. Conquistadores. Con conquerors. Psalm 144 verse 1 says, God trains our hands and our fingers for? Battle. War. Colossians 3.5 and Romans 8.13 says that what is earthly in you must be put to death. Galatians 2.20 says, evil desire must be crucified. Jesus said in Matthew 5, whatever causes you to sin, if it's your right hand, you should cut it off and cast it from you. The Bible uses violent imagery to describe victory over sin and your attitude towards taking possession of what Jesus won for you on the cross. You're not somehow adding to what Jesus did. You're taking Jesus at his word. I've given you this land. Now go march around Jericho until it falls. And you see here, a very important note in verse 10, that the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel. 
I don't need to remind you the book of Acts. We're living in the days where the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all of God's people. He's been poured out upon you to take all necessary action against evil in your life. You have everything that God can give you to overcome these strongholds in your life. I myself have not served, but I've read and I've seen soldiers that were in Afghanistan, who were in Vietnam, and others have sometimes criticized the government for not allowing them to do what they needed to do. You'll hear especially guys from Afghanistan come back and say the rules of engagement were so complicated that the terrorists were able to work around what we were allowed to do and do more damage than than what they could have done otherwise. And when we wanted to step in and take more serious measures, we were prevented. Well, I'm here to tell you, you have no such restrictions in the spiritual realm, Christian. It's weapons free. It's get in there and do whatever needs to be done. That's why Jesus even uses terms like cutting off your hand and gouging out your eyes. Point being, there is no step too extreme to take in order to eradicate sin in your life. Rather than sitting back and bemoaning the state of your household. You know, you're just so frustrated with your wife and your kids, so you just get together with the boys and you sit on the porch. I just don't know, man. I don't want to stay here a couple hours longer. Or bemoaning the state of your community. I can't believe what they're doing over there. I can't believe what they're doing over there in that school. Or I remember when this place was that. Or, or even the country. Most of this is done online. No, oh man, I remember back in the day. Take me back to those good old days. We've got to fight so that we can bring it back. Don't just moan. Christians get up and get to work. Christians get up and fight for it. That's what Othniel teaches us. Well, we better get to this next one because this might be the most entertaining story in the book of Judges. And I'm just going to read the whole thing. And if you uh, feel tempted to laugh, that's probably intended by the author here. So let's look at this. Verse 12. And the people of Israel, again, remember step six of the cycle is repeat. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. Most people believe the city of Palms is Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Can you see the stories are getting worse as we move along? Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a Mashiach, deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, literally two mouths there, a cubit in length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute, the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had... That's going to be relevant in a second. That's why it mentions that. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon commanded, Silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. 
And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. That means exactly what you think it means. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Seirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Quite a story, isn't it? The first time I heard this story, like I probably had read it, but the first time it was ever preached to me, it was in uh, my cousin's junior high youth group. I was about 11 or 12 years old, which is the perfect age for a young man to hear this story. And I laughed so hard, I was just about falling onto the floor as this was preached. The second cycle of, of judges, they sin and God raises up another wicked king, Eglon, the Moabite. Remember, the Moabites were the descendants of Lot by an incestuous relationship with his daughter, which is where the name Moab comes from. Mo means from, Av means father, like Abba, so gross. And they had already taken some of their land in the Transjordan, and so they were probably trying to get some sort of revenge for that. They also bring the Ammonites. Ammon was the other son of Lot by his other daughter, and Amalek. And he rules over Israel 18 years. Reminder, this is probably not the entire country of Israel, but these stories may in fact overlap with one another as they describe different regions. Well, Ehud is the one in charge of bringing the tribute to fat King Eglon. Bible's words, not mine. And when they go and they drop this off, it says that he sends the others away, but he comes back from the idols at Gilgal. Literally there it says he returned, and the word is shuv, it means repent. Right? It can be translated that way. So there's kind of an implied statement here that if you want to be like Ehud, you need to turn away from the idols and go back right, to do what you've got to do. And he says, hey, I've got a word from God for, him, for you. Now, why did Eglon believe him? Because he had just come from Gilgal where the idols were. And this was a polytheistic pagan culture. They believed that you could have these divine revelations from the gods. And he says, oh, but it's a secret. So he sends everybody out of his, of his special cool chamber. And he says, I've got, a, I've got a secret message for you. You better stand up for this one. And I'm going to mention to you, when it says that he was in the cool chamber and stood up off of his seat, there are well-respected biblical exegetes who believe that he was sitting on the toilet for this part. And when he rose up off of his seat, that's exactly what it means, is that he was in the habit of re receiving visitors in his cool chamber, as they called it back then. Yeah, there's no spiritual point to make for that. It's just supposed to embarrass Eglon. Like the Moabites are gross. Aren't they gross? Yeah, they're gross. That's the whole point of the story here. So Ehud comes up. Now he was left-handed. Why is that relevant? Well, for two reasons. Number one, Benjamin means son of my right hand. 
So it's kind of ironic that you have somebody who's from the tribe of the right-handed guys, but he's left-handed. Also, by keeping a dagger on his right thigh, when you're going to check people for weapons, you're probably not going to check that side as much, because normally you draw from the opposite side. It says it was a cubit long. It's actually a word in Hebrew that is not used but here that probably implies a shortened cubit. So it was a, a dagger, you've got to think, not like a big old sword that he's carrying. And he says, come in close, you're going to want to hear this. And he runs that blade in, and the fat closes over the blade and brings it in. And then it says, the dung came out. The older translations have, the dirt came out. I should mention to you that that is a very ambiguous translation there. And it is possible that what the translator is trying to get at is that the sword went through his navel and came out the other end. That's what the passage might be saying. And if you think this is inappropriate, y'all, it's supposed to make you laugh. You're supposed to be looking at King Eglon and laughing and being at him being shamed by this Israelite who's way smarter than he is. And then what does he do? It says uh, that Ehud locks the door. He gets away and it actually says he went out through the porch. Here's another translation issue. It is entirely possible that the translation there is that Ehud escaped through the latrine. That, so get the picture here. Eglon is in the bathroom. I've got a special message from God for you. He says, well, come on in. He stands up, runs him through. He climbs down through the latrine and goes out through the wall, which is why they didn't see him coming out. It's also why the door being locked makes sense. And it's also why they did not figure this out sooner or later. Because they come in. Oh, I guess, uh, is his meeting over? Oh, Ehud is not here. So, oh, okay. From the smell, we can tell that our king is busy, to use the literal Hebrew, covering his feet as it says, relieving himself in the cool chamber. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited until it says they became embarrassed. Like, this is really nasty. <laughs> Do you want to, I'm not opening that door. You want to try to, what if we burst in on our king and he's sitting there and he's like, what's your problem? Leave me alone. So finally they figure, okay, you know what? National security is at risk. We're breaking into the king's bathroom. And they open it up. And there's King Eglon dead on the floor. Now, where's Ehud at this point? Well, he's probably jumping across the rooftops like Assassin's Creed, getting away. And he says he gets up into the Ephraim territory. Notice that the first deliverer was from Judah. The second one is from Ephraim. These are the two northern and southern kingdoms that are going to be kind of at each other's throat, even in this book. But he rallies the people to fight. They go to the fords of the Jordan River, which are, ford is a place where the river runs lower, where it's easier to cross. They take possession of that, so the Moabites have nowhere to run. And it says they defeated these 10,000, verse 29, says strong, able-bodied men. The words there for strong, able-bodied technically is the term stout. And depending on the context, can refer either to a well-built, strong person, or it can also refer to somebody who is fat, as Eglon was. So it could be that they're making another joke at the expense of the Moabites in this passage here, saying they killed their fat king, and then they went out and they killed all of their fat soldiers, and that's how they won the battle. That's what the scripture is telling us. It's supposed to be, remember, in an honor-shame culture, shaming the Moabites, that our soldiers are strong, they're able to defeat yours, they're able to deceive your mighty king that's ruled us for 18 years, and that's Ehud. For 80 years, two more generations, they have peace here. What's the lesson for us from this story? Well, Ehud fought for his land, like Othniel did. But he's setting us another example here, which is to take the initiative in the fight against wickedness. 
We're talking about fighting for it, right? We're talking about fighting against evil. Ehud teaches us sometimes you've got to be the one to take the first step. You've got to be the one to go out and take the battle to the enemy. A Christian knows, like everything I just said, everybody kind of, we can nod, and yes, we're supposed to fight, we're supposed to push back against wickedness, push back against evil, yes. However, too often, we wait for somebody else to give us permission and tell us exactly what to do before we step out and do anything. We'll sit there and pray for days and days and months and months and years and years when what we're supposed to do is right in front of us and very obvious. We are to take personal responsibility for the inheritance that God has given to us. We see Ehud going to this man and taking care of business himself. And it does not even seem to be part of some grand scheme because he just shows up and blows the trumpet and rallies the troops. Very similar to Josh, uh, not Joshua, Jonathan in 1 Samuel chapter 14. This is a scene where the Philistines have invaded the land of Israel. And there's King Saul sitting on top of a mountain under a pomegranate tree, which is a symbol of luxury. And he's praying. It says they had the ark there and they were uh, listening to the priest in an ephod. They're having a prayer meeting. How delightful. Meanwhile, the land is being overrun by soldiers. People of Israel are defecting over to the Philistines and everybody is scared to death. This was not the time for a prayer meeting. This was the time to rally the soldiers and go to war. But Saul, who was no spiritual man himself, is cloaking himself in religion to protect his own cowardice. So in 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan, his son, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's the insult they had for Philistines, these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It may be that the Lord will let us win the battle all by ourselves. And that's exactly what happened. It says they struck down more than 30 soldiers in one first attack. Jonathan knocked them down. The armor bearer came behind and finished them off. Then God sent an earthquake. He threw the people into a panic. And the people of Israel finally came out of their caves and attacked and won the battle that day. That's our example. That's Ehud's example. Something's got to be done. And maybe the elders of Israel were having 18 years of meetings about what to do. What do we do about this guy? What are we gonna, what's God going to have us do? And then he just heard plan after plan after plan go by. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and kill Eglon. I'm going to sneak in. I'm going to take him by surprise. I know he's a very superstitious man. And I'm going to sneak out through the bathroom. And then he shows up and says, hey, Eglon's dead. Let's go to war. Sometimes that's what has to happen, especially in your family or in your community or in your church. You must never be silent or still before a spiritual attack. God, even on days like the Red Sea parting, when he said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. What did God tell Moses? Tell the people to move forward. Keep going. Take action. And sometimes you're not going to get a Macedonian man experience, a vision of the man from Macedonia, come and help us. Well, that's pretty straightforward, right? Sometimes you've just got to take the initiative, doing what is best, as far as you can tell, through prayer and through the study of the word and through godly counsel. Martin Luther showed up to the church at Wittenberg and posted the 95 Theses on the door. And he changed the world. He just did what needed to be done. 
There's a man named John Leland who represented most of the Christian churches, the Baptists especially, in Virginia. That when James Madison comes back from the Constitutional Convention with a constitution that included no protection for religious liberty, John Leland ran against him in his election, the first election, and was going to beat him. Until finally, there's a spot you can go visit in Virginia. There's a tree you can stand under where they got a little plaque. John Leland met with James Madison, and they cut a deal. Leland says, I'll back out of the, the race if you promise the first thing you put in that Constitution is that you're never going to infringe religious liberties. That's why we came to this continent in the first place. He just stepped up and did it. Hudson Taylor went to China and was willing to set aside the trappings of his Western lifestyle in order to reach the people, grow out his hair, wear the robes, learn Chinese, and he was the one who was effective. Pastor Chuck invited the hippies into the church. Nobody liked it. His church didn't even like it, but he did it. It needed to happen. More recent history, Jerry Falwell founded the moral majority when things were so bad and so wicked and abortion was on the rise and homosexuality. In more recent days, men and women have stood firm against religious pressure, whether to close their churches long after the crisis was over or to allow their, their students to be taught homosexuality in the classrooms. And here's the thing. Some of these things, you might not like their style very much. You might, I don't, I've never big, been a big fan of the moral majority or, oh, those churches should have just, just gone with it and, not, and just trusted God to take care of them instead of taking a stand in the public square. I don't judge another man's servant. All I say is that I wasn't living in that situation. And if I was, I'm sure the Lord would have told me exactly what to do. And in fact, you, you can look at Ehud and say, was this the right way to do this? And there, this, I mean, I had to read pages and pages of this, you guys. Like, did Ehud do the right thing or not? Isn't it dishonorable to sneak into a man's bathroom and stab him in the stomach? I mean, it kind of sounds dishonorable, right? Now, the story doesn't portray him as doing anything wrong, but the Bible often does that. It just does, says this is what happened and this is how it happened. God obviously used him. He's portrayed positively, but there, I'm sure there were people that criticized him for it. To which you have to say, okay, well, then what was your plan for 18 years? Very similar, in fact, to Diedrich Bonhoeffer and the men in Germany that had a plan to assassinate Hitler. There are people to this day that say, pastors got no business planning an assassination of a, of a leader of their country. And I, to which I say, even Hitler? But even they wrestled with that fact and said, something's got to be done, and we're going to do this. At least you fought for something, even if you face criticism for what you've done. This is, by the way, why our church goes to the schools. This is why we go to the prisons. It's why we go to the pregnancy center. We are taking initiative. We're taking responsibility for what's happening in our backyard. Not worrying so much about what's happening somewhere else, but as long as it's here, I can do something about that. It's our business. We are making it our business to fight for the things that are important right here. And there will be people that criticize you when you step up and do something. And maybe Ehud does not quite attain to the level of Othniel, but boy, did God use him. And God will use you too. I'm a big fan of motion. I'm a big fan of taking a step and trying things and seeing if the Lord is in it. Much better than standing still and doing nothing. Well, we've got one more, and it's only one verse here. Verse 31. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat who killed 600 of the Philistines with a pointy stick, an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Shamgar. This is the first minor judge. 
There are 13 total judges, as I said, in this book, five of which are called minor judges, and Shamgar is the first one. You can see why. It's because it's only got a verse about him. It doesn't give us very many details. Just one of those, I gotta tell this story. <laughs> We're gonna read about him again in chapter five in the song of Deborah. She's going to mention the days of Shamgar were so dangerous that people couldn't even walk on the highways because of the Philistines. So perhaps Shamgar's, I don't know if you wanna call it his ministry, but <laughs> his work overlapped with that of Deborah and Barak. You look at Shamgar too, he might not even be an Israelite. A couple reasons for this. First of all, his name has a four-consonantal root. In Hebrew, all of your root words have three consonants. All the names would have that. His has four, which might not seem like a big deal, but it's one of the ways you know is this Hebrew or is this another language. He's also called the son of Anath. Anath was the Phoenician goddess of war, similar to Athena in Greek mythology. And in fact, we have found arrows, we, like I did it, they have found arrows in the promised land that have inscribed on them the son of Anath. They would have their name, the son of Anath. That's how they like mark their stuff. To be called a son of Anath was to be a warrior. Like, she's my mama. She's the warrior princess and we fight for her. But she was a false goddess. She also was a Phoenician false goddess. Phoenicia would be Tyre, Sidon, cities like that. So, it could be that by calling him the son of Anath, they're just saying this was the guy. This was the warrior in Israel. Or it could very well be that he was not an Israelite by birth. It's also possible, by the way, that the Kenizzites, the tribe of Caleb, were not originally Israelites and that they joined themselves to the tribe of Judah later on, perhaps when the mixed multitude left Egypt. In any case, he saved Israel. He slew 600 Philistines with an ox goad. How did they make ox goads back then? You'd take a staff, you'd take a giant spike, and you would drive it through the, through the staff at the end. You'd bend it, and you've got a pointy stick. And you would poke oxen with it to get them to move when you wanted them to move. And he killed 600 guys with one of these things. It's supposed to be impressive. It impresses me. This is also, by the way, the first conflict we read about between the Philistines and the Israelites. It will not be the last. We'll talk about them more when we get uh, farther on into the story. Here's an important lesson for us. We're talking about fighting for something, right? We talked about the need to fight in the first place. Secondly, we talked about taking initiative and taking responsibility for the situation and being the one to step up and fight. But here's another important lesson. God does not need you to rally an army or overthrow the government, and that's what fighting is. Because if you start thinking in that domain, you will never come across something in your own life where you can make a meaningful change. He needs you to act as best as you can in your sphere of influence with your own level of strength. Rather than obsessing over what's going on in Washington or New York or San Francisco, looking at your community, your street, your neighborhood, your state, and saying, what can I do here? Looking on your cul-de-sac and saying, what can I do here? In your house with those kids sitting around that table, when you gather for Thanksgiving, your brothers and sisters, what can I do here? This is the best way to think about this in your own level of strength, because then you can either start to feel real bad about yourself, that what could I ever do with my life, or you start to get all prideful about it and say, well, those things are beneath me. I'm waiting for the revolution, baby. If you ever think you're too weak, just remember, Moses had a stick 
Exodus 4, verse 2. What's that in your hand, Moses? A staff. Now, yeah, it was a, we call it a staff or a rod or a shepherd's crook. It was a stick. He had a stick. And God goes, with this stick, you will do my wonders. I go, really? A stick? Not even like a golden stick or things? No, a stick. What did Samson have? We'll read about him later. He had a jawbone. There was a dead donkey on the side of the road, and there's a thousand Philistines that had him tied up. He reaches in, grabs the jaw, yanks it out, and goes, okay, fellas, bring it on. Well, that was Samson. Yeah, but what did Samson have that made him so special? The Holy Spirit of God came upon him. The same spirit, I add, who dwells in you? There was a little boy in John chapter 6 who had five loaves of bread and two little fishes. And Jesus did an amazing miracle with that. Don't come to me and tell me how little you have and how small your influence is and how no one's going to listen to me and how your platform is nil. It's okay. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's backwards thinking unless you believe in Jesus. Unless you realize that the Holy Spirit is within you and empowers you to do these things. God expects you to do as much as you can with what you have. And that's enough. God is not expecting you to be Martin Luther or to be Athanasius or to be, pick your hero, right? It might be in some of you to be that. And I'm sure there are more people that God wants to do those things with. But most of God's strategy is to seed the world with spirit-filled, Bible-believing Christians that just start to live out the gospel wherever they go. And that changes things. Matthew 25, 15. Some people got five talents. Some people got three. Some people got one. Don't be the guy that buries it. Well, I only had one. God goes, you could have at least done something with it. You look at the country and you say, how are we ever going to turn the tide of sexual immorality? Pray about that. But let me ask you this. What can you do about it in your household? Can you teach your son to abstain from pornography? Can you teach your daughter not to post lurid photos on Instagram? Can you yourself abstain from those things? Can you speak up when your sister, who maybe has gotten away from the Lord, is bragging about all these things or engaging in coarse humor and say, no, that's the kind of thing that contributes to what we're talking about here. Can you do that? Well, it certainly seems more manageable than ending the tide of pride marches around the country. Yeah, good. Start with that. Can you be a cul-de-sac for gossip? When people start talking bad about other people, can you be the one where it dies? I'm going to stop being a link in this chain. The circuit stops with me. When someone comes and they're going to tell me something about somebody else or complain about some other person, I say, you know, I, I don't want to have this conversation with you. I don't want to talk about another person behind their back. Well, I'm just really so frustrated. I just got to vent. Then go vent to Jesus or get a blog or something because I'm not going to do this. Because you know what you do when you say that to somebody? Even one time, you shame everybody in the room because they know, uh, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that either. And you can change that in your neighborhood. You, oh, my neighbor, all she ever wants to talk about is how much she hates her daughter-in-law. Well, next time say, look, if, if all we're going to talk about is, is her, I don't want to do, talk today. We've got to talk about something else. Well, you don't care about my situation? I don't think it's good for you to spend all your time with me talking about this. I care about you and I care about her. And if you spend all your time like Gollum with the ring, nursing your hatred of this person, it's not going to be pretty when it's over.
People are just going crazy today. There's no sense anymore. Right wing, left wing, everybody's nuts. Everybody's angry. Everybody's divided. Can you be the voice of reason on your street? But the world, and forget the world, your street. Where do you live? I live on Lake Ridge Drive. Can I be the voice of reason there? Can I, just these five or six people that I know, can I at least be the one reminding everybody about the truth of the gospel and that we have peace that passes all understanding and that we need to seek first the kingdom of God? Can I at least be the one that talks everybody down? Well, that's only six people. Yeah, well, they might know a few people and they might know a few. And what have you done? You've turned the temperature down just a little bit. It's better. Is it fixed? No, but it's better. And at least you can say, well, around here, that doesn't happen. They're taking Bibles out of the school. Well, can you bring one back? Thank you guys for signing up for Discovery Club, by the way. They had their first meeting this last week. We get to do that. Do you tell your kids to bring their Bibles to school? Do you tell your kids to pray for their lunches? If you're the one going to school, are you taking God's word in there? They won't let me. Uh, yeah, they can't stop you. I remember one time, this is not part of the message, but I was in eighth grade. I remember this class, Miss Ellison was her name. And uh, I like to read, in case you didn't know that about me. And I used to really like to read back then. And uh, one day I was simply not paying attention in class. I was reading instead. And I was reading my Bible. And uh, she came up to me at one point, put her hand on my shoulder and squats down. And she goes, Tyler, please don't make me tell you to put your Bible away. <laughs> She was a nice lady. Oh, the world is just going to hell in a handbasket. All right, when's the last time you shared the gospel at the supermarket? Right? Why not? Why can't you? Pick a kind of person. I'm serious. Do this. Pick a kind of person. Every time I see somebody with different colored hair, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Every time I come across somebody who smells like booze, I'm going to share the gospel with them. Every time I see somebody wearing sweatpants, or a green shirt. Every time I see a woman with three children, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. Just, just do that. Because then it's, you've got that, oh, there it is. I'm going to go and talk to them about the Lord. I don't know how to start a conversation. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Of course you do. We, but somehow we freak out about it when, when Jesus is involved. What's your name? Oh, my name is, is Bob. Oh, my name is Jim. Well, what do you do? Oh, I, this is what I do. Hey, do you go to church anywhere? That's normal small talk. Oh, well, not really. Oh, why not? Oh, you know, I don't have a problem with the church. And it's, well, you know, I go to church and you know what? I don't go just because it's a good thing. I, I believe in Jesus with all my heart. I actually believe this stuff. Now, what do you believe about Jesus? I got to go. Are you sure? Share the gospel, man. I don't know if that's a very effective means of ministry. It's called sowing seeds, friends. Most people, I don't know how they did the statistics on this, but I've read in one of my evangelism books, they say the average person needs 18 interactions with the gospel before they come to Jesus. I don't know if that's true or not, but why not give it a try? Because then eventually they're going to be thinking about it. They'll hear somebody, and then when somebody actually gets a chance to lay it all out in front of them, say, you know what, I've heard something about this before. And by the way, street evangelism works. I've led tons of people around the world to Jesus Christ. There's a pastor in... Russia, right now, Pastor Pasha, who was saved during a street evangelism outreach that my dad did in, back in the 90s in Russia when the wall came down. He's pastoring that church now. The worship leader was saved in a street outreach. Hey, man, can I talk to you about Jesus for a minute? Don't say it doesn't work. What else can you do? 
Can you help your church publish the gospel around the world? You sure can. Volunteer. Serve somehow. Do something. Can you raise godly children? Kids today are just terrible. They just don't know anything. And every generation is just the worst one that's ever come, you know. And Well, can you raise godly children? Not saying they won't be weird sometimes, but can you raise them that love Jesus? That doesn't make a difference. Oh, yes, it does. You raise two godly kids. They marry two other godly people. Now they're having children. Now you've really multiplied the, the godly offspring that the Lord is searching for. Can you tithe? Can you testify about what Jesus has done for you? Some of y'all are sitting on your stories and you've got to stop. Because there are people here that need that from you. Can you pray and weep and groan for the lost? All these, well, it's all so small. Don't let the enemy trick you into thinking these things don't matter. That's the devil's voice. Oh, that's a stupid strategy. Well, yeah, you're saying that because it's about to smack you right in the face. They are all that matters. These little things. We think, oh, well, if we can get a million people together, that's great. Start with three. We can get a million pastors to pray. I've heard people have done this before. We just got to get a million pastors to pray. And I'll say, hey, I love this. You know, we have a, a prayer meeting every uh, once a month at this church. You just come out to it. I, you know, I just kind of, I'm, I'm real busy. It's like, you're more excited about the big event, and that makes you feel like you're really doing something so that you begin to despise the mundane, everyday spirituality. Y'all, can I say this? It's cheap and it's easy to call for major change. There's nothing special about that. This country needs to come back to Jesus. I agree. What are you doing about it? Well, it's not my job. It is so. You are the salt and the light of the earth. Well, I can't change Washington. Who cares about Washington? What about here? What about Trustville? What about Clay? What about Pinson? What about where you live? Well, that's a, that's a lost cause. Not as long as you're there. Lord, you've got to send somebody to share the gospel with this person in the, in the desk next to me. God goes, <laughs> Yeah, it would be a good idea. Until he gets here, why don't you take care of that? <laughs> it's cheap and easy to call for major change. It's harder and better to work to take back your own land, to drive Eglon, to drive Kushan Rishathaim out of your neighborhood. And I'll say this, a lot of people that get really revved up about national politics or about deep theology matters and only have critical things to say about the church, a lot of times those people have got nothing going on in their spiritual life and that's why they do that. Their marriages are a mess. They're addicted to various things. They've got no church life to speak of. So they go online and they find the right cause and they think, if I can just do this, then God will accept me. You say, that sounds an awful lot like left-wing virtue signaling. Ah, it is. It's called Christian virtue signaling. It's the same thing. Oh, did that sting a little bit? It's the same thing. What good is it to stand in the street and say, that's evil, when you've got people back home that you can start teaching the truth? It's harder. It takes longer, and it's not nearly as rewarding, and it doesn't feel as good in the moment. But man, it's more worth it. The test that God gives to a sinful generation is to demonstrate their faithfulness to Him by making spiritual war. Our Lord does not intend us to bow down to the Eglons of the world, but to tear down their strongholds and establish His kingdom. You've got to fight for it. It's your inheritance. Get up and get after it. Because if you will rise up and do these things, by God's Holy Spirit, you'll overcome them all. 
It might not all end the way you want it to, but may our lives be that when we're done living, this world looks a little bit more like Jesus. I hope that's, that's said about my life, that anybody that encountered me walked away a little closer to Christ. Not all the way, but just a little closer. 1 John 5, 4 says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You've got to believe, guys. You've got to believe that this will work, because it will. Don't wait for permission. Don't look down on how short your own reach is. Rise up and fight for something.